gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Right? Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Inception with our special guest, Chief Experience Officer at Inverse. My dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. Johan, how are you? I'm great, Ian. How are you? Excited to have you on the show. Excited to chat about not just marketing, not just content, but customer experience and how it all relates into content and creating something very special. So let's get into it. Why the heck did you choose Inception? Well, I, I feel like as a marketer by, by trade, that's what we do. Our, our whole mission is to plant ideas into customers' heads and convince them that it was their idea from the first and the first time I saw this movie, that is, it just jumped out at me. And I thought, wow, that's, it, that really sums up the marketing profession in a nutshell. What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? Uh, what Mr. Cobb is trying to say. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks. It's the best marketing movie that's not a, not a marketing movie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The, and, and, you know, they go into the psychology of it all, and that's really largely what we do, is get into people's psyche and try to tap into their experiences and their feelings and get them to take some kind of action, which at the highest level, that's the plot line of Inception. Well, and, and I think that part of the thing that is so interesting too is it's also kind of sales's job, but it's much more so if you think of sales and marketing together as like a full revenue function, then the inception part of it is the putting the ideas out there and the sales part of it is the listening to what they're saying and hopefully you're listening before you're putting ideas out there as well but it's just a very interesting sort of take of like you have to be putting something you know out there that that they're ready to hear about and we'll talk about that much more in a little bit meredith what the heck is inception so Inception is this sci-fi action, mind-bending movie about a corporate spy who enters people's dreams to steal secrets from their subconscious. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. And Leonardo DiCaprio plays the main character, Dominic, or Dom Cobb. And he's basically gifted with this ability that's made him extremely successful, that is, like, entering people's dreams. Um, but he's lost everything because of it, namely his marriage and children. His wife is played by this French actress, Marion Cotillard. And so he's kind of haunted by her and his subconscious, and she ends up being kind of like his nemesis and thwarting his every move along the way. I was trying to save you. You betrayed me. We can make amends. You can still keep your promise. We can still be together right here in the world we built together. So anyway, he's given this chance to sort of redeem himself by planting an idea in someone's mind and having to go layers deep into their subconscious, which is, of course, a nearly impossible task, which is why it's so exciting. If I even could do it, I'd need a guarantee. How do I know you can deliver? You don't. But I can't. So, do you want to take a leap of faith? Or become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? 
And so the movie was released in 2010 and directed by Christopher Nolan, known for Oppenheimer, Dunkirk, and the latest Batman series starring Christian Bale. Nolan also produced it along with his wife, Emma Thomas, for Warner Bros. And it also stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Arthur, Elliot Page as Ariadne, and Tom Hardy as Eames. How did this, how does thing get made? Because it's about as crazy of a, of a movie as you could possibly make. Yeah, it is so complicated. And it was cool to learn about the backstory. So I was surprised to find out that Christopher Nolan actually came up with the idea 10 years earlier in 2001. But basically, like, there were a lot of things against him. The technology just wasn't there to make it. He also didn't have enough credibility at the time to demand the budget it needed. So he obviously envisioned these stunning special effects, these big, complex action sequences. His wife and producing partner, Emma Thomas, said, it read enormous and thought thought, my God, how would we ever do this? You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. But what happened was like the following decade, Nolan was able to produce the Batman trilogy. So Nolan would produce the Batman trilogy at that time. And that gave him like the experience, critical acclaim and special effects team capable of producing this top tier work that would be Inception. So... Given that um, Inception was filmed over seven months in six different countries, they had production offices in Tokyo, London, Paris, Morocco, Los Angeles, and Calgary. I was surprised by the Calgary one, but that's where the skiing scene is, the winter scene at the very end. Yeah, of course. It's designed as elaborate. There must be access routes that cut through the maze, right? Ames! And so to give insight into a few of the very memorable scenes, like the hand-to-hand fight in the zero-gravity room, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt spent days in a wire-rigged harness inside this rotating hotel corridor created by this London-based special effects supervisor named Chris Corbould. And he's super famous in that in that space and somebody who had also worked on the Batman movies. So that was the connection there. In the exploding Parisian street scene, where it has like all of these exploding like fruits and cobblestone and all of that. We're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. Stay calm. That is kind of like a mix of CGI and these special effects. So basically, Paris officials obviously didn't want actual explosions happening or and they wouldn't allow noise above 110 decibels. So Nolan's team used high-pressure nitrogen to create what they called a ballet of destruction with uh, breaking bottles and cobblestones added through CGI later. So it's a mix of real and fake because Nolan wanted the actors to be reacting to something real. And so a lot of their reactions in that scene are real. Things are exploding around them, but there's there are elements of CGI added in later. And of course, there were mountains of post-production work The scene where Leonardo DiCaprio and Elliot Page wake up in the deepest layer of subconscious, what they call Limbo City. This is your world? It was. This is where she'll be. That took nine months of post-production work to make. So lots of filming in person and then CGI work later. To me, the, the Christopher Nolan inception story as a creator also starts much earlier with memento which is i don't know if it's his first film but a very early film from him which is notoriously taught in film schools or in writing schools as what not to do is <laughs> like don't ever create a movie that's backwards from time oh, i remember um well yeah because it's like so ridiculously hard and if you if you watch What's his most recent movie? Tenet. Yeah, Tenet. I mean, Tenet is like as high concept of a right. movie as could like humanly be, pretty much. And so with, what I think is so interesting about Nolan is like not only does he get the special effects piece from from Batman and he gets like the credibility and the budget and the and like these all these ridiculously cool actors that have worked with him over the years, but he has also this other side of this like mind-bending, mind-warping way he thinks about storytelling. And I think it really feels like, for me, it all comes together in Inception, which is like, it's mind-bending, the acting is crazy good, the special effects are out of this world, and then the CGI is 
truly nothing that has ever been made. Never recreate places from your memory. Always imagine new places. Well, you gotta draw from stuff you know, right? Only use details, uh, a, a street lamp or a phone booth, never entire areas. Why not? Because building a dream from your memory is the easiest way to lose your grasp on what's real and what is a dream. Is that what happened to you? Listen, this has nothing to do with you, understand? Is that why you need me to build your dreams? And it creates something that I think surrounds this idea of an agent that's going to someone's subconscious into their dreams and makes it feel real somehow. And it's, it's like a startling achievement. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting to me about Nolan is I feel like he's kind of nerded out on time dilation, yeah. right? Because in Inception, we explore what happens as you move through these various dream states. And, and in the movie, they talk about how, you know, when you're asleep, even just for 10 minutes, it can feel like a whole day goes by in your dream and you never know when you started and you don't know when you ended. And that's part of how you know you're in this dreamlike state. Let me ask you a question. You, you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the... Uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? And then, you know, you look at a movie like Interstellar where he explores time dilation as it relates to gravity, right? And then and then you go to Tenet where he's exploring time dilation in a whole different way as a nonlinear experience. And so I think it's just so fascinating. And that's part of what I, I enjoy so much about these movies is that you have a director who is exploring a related concept in film after film after film, completely different topics, completely different plot lines. And yet there is this thread of, uh, you know, of everything related to time that brings the work together in a way that's, it, it feels to me more organic than like a franchise way, like the Batman trilogy, like, okay, yes, it's Batman movies, right? We get that. But having having this this thread that runs through these other pieces of work, I think, is so interesting and allows him to explore this topic more deeply. And I think that you saw all of this like brand equity that he's built up with his fans, with the massive, massive, massive drop. Pardon the pun with Oppenheimer, which is his first ever piece of nonfiction which is the exact opposite of what he did. And of course he chose like the most ridiculous thing in human history to, to, to be the topic for that. So obviously it's mind, mind bending in its own way, but he built that up over years and years and years of like, Hey, trust me, I'm going to tell you a, a story that's going to sort of like warp your mind. And he has that fan base and he has that mystique and there's not a lot of people who can do that. I'm curious when you first watched the movie, Johan, and you got this, you know, it's called Inception. You learn about Inception in the, in the film. Inception. Now, before you bother telling me it's impossible. It's no, it's perfectly possible. It's just bloody difficult. I mean, it immediately clicked for you. Did you have that moment of like, was there Inception on my end? Did someone put this in my mind years ago? That this is what <laughs> we're supposed to be doing in marketing? I, I don't think I had a, had that sort of a, a reaction to it. My my reaction was very much <clears throat> it it made me actually think in a new way about the different layers of a person's psychology as it relates to decision making and recognizing that where we often f flounder as marketers is when we're talking to the wrong part of their, their psyche, where when you get down to it in the movie, we get to this base human emotion that is driving this decision about whether or not to split up the company, right? And it is, it is this relationship between Robert Fisher and his father. I know, Dad. I know you were disappointed. I couldn't be you. 
No, no. I was disappointed. We just tried. That is, it, it's just like, it's not a business decision. It is 100% the relationship between father and child, which also gets explored in Interstellar. But that relationship made me realize that oftentimes as marketers, we're trying to plant a seed around a business idea. Like, oh, you can grow your revenues if, or you can save money if. And that, while that appeals to the sort of the head, it doesn't speak to the heart. But the buying decisions of when I was in sales, one of my first sales mentors said to me, you know, people buy for emotional reasons and then back it up with facts. That became really clear to me that what what we needed to do as marketers was, was peel away those layers of the onion and get past the business person and down to the human and speak to that person and plant the seed that like you might get promoted if, or maybe you could spend more time with your family if. And that that was the level that we had to go through. But it was, we have to pass through those dreamlike states and go deeper and deeper and deeper to get to that. Because, you know, you can't just say to somebody like, oh, hey, you're going to get a promotion if this goes well. They're not going to believe you. It has to be their idea. They have to believe that their career will be somehow enhanced if they partner with you. No idea is simple when you need to plant it in somebody else's mind. Yeah, I totally agree. And and it made me think of pre-COVID. So I think seven or eight lifetimes ago at this point, I remember sitting around talking with a group of CIOs off of the record and all three of them were Zoom customers. And I was like, I find this to be like, this whole thing kind of clunky and like, it's kind of hard to use, whatever. And they're like, Ian, you're not a CIO, like you don't get it. Like it's just way easier to like manage and et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, COVID hits and then they're already a step ahead. They sort of done a bunch of planning there. And you could just see that pre-messaging that had sort of come about of like, it's just easier to manage your entire company using Zoom. And they already had felt that way, even though they're like, it's it's a lot easier, but just just trust me if we ever needed a thing. And on the other side of that, you had their competitors who are like, yeah, but if something security-wise ever happens, you're going to wish you had us. And it's like the the parts of the psyche that's like the, do I want to get promoted or do I not want to get fired thing, right? <laughs> Being those two, those two poles. And like, for me, watching Inception and seeing those two drivers of like, how do you plant those things to the right person? What are they motivated by? What is the thing that, that they need to hear? The subconscious is motivated by emotion, right? Not reason. We need to find a way to translate this into an emotional concept. How do you translate a business strategy into an emotion? That's what we're here to figure out, right? Because people do need to hear different things. Obviously, you have features and benefits, but you have other different emotional things. And if you only are saying, well, we're the company that's going to get you promoted there's a large a large group of people of course they want that but there's a lot of people who are like well if i'm already the cio for example you can't promote me more than this like i'm already a cio like i'll find another cio job i, I actually just don't want things to go bad so i need to play it safe or, or whatever that that thing is and that just like jumped out of me when i when i watched inception of hey, what is the right thing to play to the right person? Because they have to get so specific in the movie. They have to go to the, the single person, that single decision maker. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah, and they had, to, they had to unpack his life to get to the fact that it was the relationship with his father. We need the heir of a major corporation to dissolve his father's empire. You see right there, you have various political motivations and anti-monopolistic sentiments and so forth, but all of that stuff, it's... Um... It's really at the mercy of your subject's prejudice, you see. And what you have to do is start at the absolute basic. Which is what? The relationship with the father. And I think that's the craft in the storytelling is they show you the unwinding to get what it took to get to the knowledge and then what it took to apply the knowledge. And I think that's where in marketing and in sales, people jump right into the explanation. They just want to apply the knowledge and they haven't really validated, they haven't really done, done that upfront work to go, is this 
really the right message? Is this really what the outcome is? And that's where, again, these business outcomes tend to be a little bit of the red herring because everybody's talking about, oh, save money, grow revenues, improve processes. And while that's all well and good, that's not ultimately the buying driver. I love I love car advertising, right? Because they show you this like beautiful shot, like, you know, people dancing on the beach around their Jeep or whatever the thing is, right? And the thing just looks awesome. The car is like the perfect color. It's like, you could be living your best life. It's almost it's almost surreal, right? Like, oh my gosh, I could be this happy human being if I own this vehicle. And then at the end, they're like, oh, it also gets five stars at the IIHS safe crash test ratings. And, and you're like, you know they added that because once you fall in love with how beautiful this car is and how it's going to help you lose weight and regrow your hair and all the stuff, you're going to have to go to your partner and be like, it's also safe for the kids, honey. You know, like you have to justify it with the facts. And I think that's the, the what do you do with the knowledge once you have it? You have to, to spend the time up front to really deeply know your audience. You have to go through all of those layers of their persona and get down to like, Ian, like what you said, you don't go to the CIO and say, hey, you can get promoted. They're going, well, you know, maybe you can help me get onto some boards, but that's not really where my head is. My head is, I want to excel and make all of my bonus and be here where my shares vest. And, you know, that's a different set of challenges than when you have somebody who is a sort of first level manager who's been, you know, told by the CIO, hey, go evaluate this, go figure out, you know, how we solve this problem. They are the ones who are like, oh, I have, I, I may not even know that much about this problem that I've been asked to go solve. Now I have to do all this research, figure out the problem, start to cobble together an idea of a solution. What I present can't sound like it came from a vendor. It has to sound like original thinking, you know, and, and they have a whole different set of objectives around their career and the potential and also reputation risk. But I think that's, that's actually one that's shared by everybody in this process. I think another piece about Inception is that it is a cautionary tale because depending on how you view the end of the movie. <laughs> I knew we were going to talk about the end at some point. <laughs> like, does it actually work? Did what they tried to do actually work? But this world is not real. Convince me to honor our arrangement. To take a leap of faith, yes. Was their philosophy right? And I think that that's a great marketing parallel too, where, you know, if, so if you're doing something like category design or people, you know, you see these sort of things that fall by the wayside and uh, initiatives, oh, we're going to bring the entire company as this. And then, you know, eight months later, it didn't take. And this is why, you know, like all those sort of things. We've all seen those. We've been part of those. And I think that you can go down the rabbit hole and, or maybe, maybe down the road and, and see every single stop sign along the way and be like, eh, you know, like it's probably fine until you fly off the cliff. So, I saw an, I, I read an interview, a recent interview with Christopher Nolan, which was asking him about the end of Inception. And what I took away from that was his point of view is the end. The, what, whether it's still a dream or not a dream doesn't matter because Cobb is happy. Like he's achieved the happiness that he, he was setting out for. Like the whole reason he was in this, in this spiral of, of going and, and, you know, visiting Limbo City and, and all the things he was doing was because he was just trying to get back to his kids, which was the, the sort of the happy state. Yes, hello. Hi, daddy. Hi, dad. Hey guys. Hey, how are you? How you doing? Huh? Okay, I guess. Okay? Well, who's just okay? Is that you, James? Yeah. When are you coming home, Dad? Well, I can't, sweetheart. I can't. It's not for a while, remember? And in the end, his happiness is achieved, and it doesn't matter if it's real or imagined. And I think that that it is a cautionary tale, but after reading that interview, I started to think that maybe the cautionary tale is, 
we don't have to get so wrapped up in whether the outcome matches what what the customer had in mind at the beginning. The point is that we're with them on the journey. And in the intro, you talked about how does this apply to CX? And, and it's about the customer is going to change over time. And if we as a brand are on that journey with them from the beginning, you know, when we start marketing to them all the way through implementation and then value realization over time, it doesn't, to some extent, it doesn't actually matter if the value that they thought they were going to get is the value that they got. What's more important is that the value that they want right now is the value that they're getting right now. Are they happy with the result? Because they may have built a business case out that did not take into account the fact that they were going to do this big merger or spin off a division or enter three new markets or bring up a new product line. And so so what was promised originally, it may not even be feasible to deliver. But what really matters is, have we been with them on every step of this journey? Have we adjusted along the way as the as the plot lines have twisted and churned and, and changed? And in the end, are we getting to that happy state and staying there? And so like that, that was a little bit of this moment for me where I said, wow, yeah, this, this is even more like the real customer journey because in the end, you know, it doesn't, doesn't actually matter. What matters is, are they happy? I love it. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, there's, there's so many pieces of data out there that B2B buyers especially are actually more emotional than, than like a B2C buyer but why you buy and why you renew are often very different things, right? And like that is where marketing meets customer success. That's where like sales meets customer success. Like if if you're a good, you know, sales and marketing org and you can convince someone to do something that you think is in their best interest and they think is in their best interest and it doesn't actually work out for them, like it doesn't matter. Nobody's nobody racks up the wins on the churn accounts, right? <laughs> so you have to sort of think of the end result. And that's probably not something that's been very common over the past, I don't know, 15 years, is that you care as much about the whole I'll ring the gong on the renewal, not the sale thing. Like that's pretty new because you know it didn't didn't necessarily used to be that way. And there's just much more competition, there's much lower switching costs and all of that. Well, I think we can thank the subscription economy for that, right? Because as as the way that investors thought about value, you know, they started to to look for that sort of, hey, we've got this revenue locked under contract and we know what we can project the next three years worth of revenues really accurately because we have three year contract terms and we know when contracts are expiring. So we can we can look at the value of a business not based on last year's performance in terms of one-time sales, but actually in this recurring model. And that really flipped the switch. When I was working at SAP, that was that was during the time when we were transitioning from a on-premise, you buy it, you own it, and then you pay a small percentage in support and maintenance fees to, to the subscription to the SaaS model. And customer success manager was an entirely new role. We had support teams. We had people who supported the customer. And we had post-sale account teams who would look in on the customer periodically and attempt to sell them more things. But once you bought it, you had it. And, and it was a huge upfront investment. And so with this move to the subscription model, we've seen this huge shift, as you point out, Ian, to ringing the gong on the renewal and feeling like, okay, we have so much more skin in the game. We have to walk alongside shoulder to shoulder because we didn't get all of our money up front. The money is the long tail. It's, you know, going back to that book, Customers for Life, that was published before the SaaS era, but it's never been more important to think about the total lifetime value of a customer. And some companies and some industries were already ahead of the game. I remember in 1999, Lexus was often thrown out as a as an example of a company that was looking at the total lifetime value of their customer and sales reps at Lexus dealers and service managers at Lexus dealers were being educated on the fact that, yes, it's a $65,000 luxury car buy today, but the total lifetime value 
of a Lexus customer is $600,000. And so you have to think about the customer at that number, not at the $65,000 one-time car purchase. Because if we get them coming back to the dealer, doing all the service here, buying their next car from us, right? That that we're talking about 600K, which in 1999 was a lot more than it is today. But you know, the, I think that was an industry where there was early recognition of the lifetime total lifetime value, and in B two B, that has been a much more recent discovery and has has really changed the thinking. Yeah, to add to that, when I remember when I I bought my first Lexus and I traded in my car for, and the Kelly Blue Book was four thousand dollars, and the guy goes, "I'll give you forty five hundred." He's like, we're, we're about making a Lexus customer for life. He's like, you probably need the extra 500 bucks. And I was like, man, this is the greatest thing ever. I just got back from deployment. I'm like buying a new car. I'm like, got 500 extra bucks. I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. And the only reason why I bought a Lexus is because the same thing happened to my mom when, when she bought her car, she, you know, whatever. And so, and she had had her Lexus for like 20 years. And it's just like, it, it's a crazy thing when it, when it works must have must have been inception um <laughs> any other any other thoughts on sort of like marketing takeaways from from inception Mer- meredith anything on your end just one thing that came to mind was johan you mentioned like marketing to people's kind of like deeper human needs and how inception does that through like going it was about the relationship with his father on the top level we open up his relationship with his father say, I will not follow in my father's footsteps. Then the next level down, we feed him. I will create something for myself. Then by the time we hit the bottom level, we bring out the big guns. My father doesn't want me to be him. Exactly. And just wondering like how you, how you identify those things that are the most important to people, no matter what role they're in. And then how do you balance like spoon feeding them your message versus because like you mentioned the car commercial, like instead of saying like, you're going to be, you know, popular and go on vacations and, you know, have this great time. Uh, they just sort of picture that. Um, so that's, you know, instead of spoon feeding it, how do you kind of make it more? Um, uh, what do you want to say? Like a more subtle message in your marketing? Well, I think so certainly persona research is helpful right framing up who your who your buyer is who your audience is and and you know there are some universal truths about career stage going back to Ian's point about the CIO versus somebody who's much earlier in their career but the thing that I'm keen to remind marketers of is that you always have to leave leave room for the audience to bring their own story into the frame and all too often, we build these, you know, to keep down the inception avenue here, we build these elaborate cities that we put our buyer into. And we 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 orchestrate this narrative that is so complete and so full. And we try to be so precise in our language that we don't leave room for them to bring their own perception and perspective to it. And so if we think about where they are, who our target audience is, but then we leave room and we're intentionally vague about some aspects, right? So if we say you'll get promoted, that's a pretty specific thing to say. But if we say, you know, if we start putting forward customer stories and we call them success stories and we we emphasize in those success stories, not just the business success. Yes, they saved, you know, say they saved a million dollars or they they doubled their revenues, right? But if we emphasize that the project team was recognized, won an award, was promoted, whatever it is, even just the fact that the CIO is being profiled on the website, things like that, that's the subtle cue where the audience starts to go, oh, I'd like that. So we we recently launched this Inverse Champions program where we recognize sort of the, you know, within our customer base, everybody submits nominations and and then we we read through those and we pull out customer stories that really are sort of above and beyond in a variety of categories. 
And one of the things we've done is we've created the, the, the experience for people who were selected to take their teams out. So we give them money so that they can take their whole team out for, for a celebratory meal. And part of the thinking there was we want to be inclusive, certainly, but we also want the other project teams who maybe didn't submit nominations to look at that and go, I want to be able to take my team out for dinner. I'm going to submit nomination, right? Like it's it's planting the seed like, oh yes, it's possible that you could you could celebrate your team and you wouldn't have to pay for it. It won't have to come out of your budget. Submit a nomination, maybe you'll get selected. Right? So it's it's that subtle art of putting out things and then allowing people to say, "Yes, maybe that's not exactly my story, but I kind of want it to be or or I see something in that 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 resonates that I would like to experience." And, and then they can attach to that. But if we don't leave room for the audience to, to bring and contribute and fill in some of the blanks with their own narrative, then that's when I think we start to actually exclude people. Yeah, it's one of the things I think a lot about with our team creating podcasts and video series for other companies, for our customers, because... It's so hard to give your customers a voice and just like, just listen, right? And like, that's what you're doing when you're, most of the time, <laughs> when you're creating like a podcast or a video series, when you're co-creating with your prospects and customers. And one of the things we hear all the time, Johan, and I bet that you would believe this, is person said, why would I want to listen to my prospects, if I could just share stories from my customers, because they're all, they've all already all bought. And I was like, I mean, don't you think that it would be important to like give a voice to your prospects as well, to hear how they think about things and to share that with the world? It's like, but they're not going to be talking about how they use us. And it's like, it's like, I mean, that's a very close-minded thing, obviously. But... <laughs> And I, you know, it's like one of the things where it sort of I raises hair on my neck. But I think that like giving the space and giving the time to people, whether it's like the like no salespeople in the room type private get togethers, whether it's, you know, certain types of VIP events, whether it's like the things that you're doing by letting people celebrate their team, even like buying people a bunch of muffins and sending to them, the, sending them to their work with, you know, your name on them saying, hey, from your friends at at whatever, at Inverse. It's just giving your customers and your prospects time to just share things, but giving them a pedestal where they are like encouraged and almost obligated to share those things because they want to, but like they got a million things to do, right? So you kind of need to create the space for it. Yeah. I, I have to tell you that that story blows my mind a little bit right? because, you know, the world changes so much in yeah. such a short period of time, right? Imagine pre-COVID, a customer buys for, for some reasons, right before the pandemic happens. And then after the pandemic starts to subside a little bit, you want to have them talk about why they bought. The world is different. Yeah, I think it would be so much more important to bring the prospects in. And frankly, once you have a customer, you've educated them on how to use your language. But before they've bought from you, you'll get the cleanest and purest version of their vision for a solution and the words that they use when they're articulating it in their own mind and having hallway conversations or Zoom meetings with coworkers, their manager, et cetera. They're not using your words yet. They're using their words. Exactly. And, and, and that, that to me is, that's where the gold is. Right. It's it's like the beginning of Inception where he's they're doing the research, they're trying to unpack like what is this all about? No, because I think positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time. We all yearn for reconciliation, for catharsis. We need Robert Fisher to have a positive emotional reaction to all this. I will try this. Um, my father accepts that I want to create for myself, not follow in his footsteps. That might work. Might. We need to do a little better than might. How do they look at this? How does how does it work? What is the what are the relationships inside? You know, and and a lot of that you can get through data now. You can look at who knows whom, what what does the network look like? They're great 
intent solutions on the market that will give you search terms like what are people searching for? I spend a lot of time with our web person looking at SEO terms to say like, I want to figure out what are people using when they go to Google and they type in, you know, how do I, and then finish the sentence. Like, I want to know what that is. I don't want to know what my customers call it because we've trained them what to call it. I want to know from the prospect today, right now, in this moment, how are they thinking about the problem and what words are they using? Because I suspect in three years, they're going to use some different words. Yeah, and one of the things that that has also come up time and time again is is someone being like, well, what if they talk about one of our competitors? What if they give a glowing review about one of our competitors? Isn't that so bad? And it's like, I totally hear you that that's not great. But the alternative to that is, if they're talking so glowingly about one of your competitors, perhaps there's a way that you could earn that business in a similar way and go above and beyond. And if you're not going to do this, what are you going to do? And that's the thing. It's like, there's no other answer there. It's like, well, we need to educate them. It's like maybe having them come on a series that you own and produce and put out into the world is a way to start a dialogue of which right now is one very one-sided between them and your competitor and you have zero dialogue with them. And so, and then I think, I think that that's like part of the inception piece of this is like lots of times you are trying to convince the converted of your way of thinking and they already believe the other way of thinking. Like that's really hard. It's going to take probably years. It's going to take probably tens of really good experiences with you and your company. And there's lots of different ways that you can do that, but, but you need to have a strategy of doing those things. And it can't just be a, you know, us versus them competitor sales deck. Well, I think the whole competitor conversation is so interesting. And I want to dive into that for just a second, because there is often this fear about talking about the competition. And certainly, I think from a legal standpoint, you have to be very cautious about, as a brand, talking about the competition. But to your point about like putting somebody on, on a program or on stage or someplace where they might say something nice about the competitor product, I actually think that adds credibility. 100%. Because... because you know, there's no such thing as a perfect solution. And I think it's really important, you know, I, I see in the consumer world, if I can find a way to get an unbiased comparison between products, and and if I can find a brand that is willing to say, look, this is what our product is great at. And if, and if that's not for you, if you're not looking for these things, then actually these other companies provide products and this is where they're strong, right? That immediately elevates the brand in my eyes because if they're willing to say, I'm not the panacea, I'm not everything for everybody, right? I'm great for large companies. And if you're a small company, actually you should check these other guys out because they're better for small companies, right? That immediately will elevate the brand in my book. And you may lose my business today because I'm a small company, but in five years, when I get poached by a recruiter and I go work for a big company, I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to call call up or go back to the website to go find you. And I think that's the part we lose sight of. And again, you know, going back to this personal versus versus business, if we market to you like you are part of the business, then what happens when you leave and go someplace else, right? We have to market to you like you're a human being in a role. You might be a financial controller, you might be a head of customer services, a chief revenue officer, a chief information officer, right? We have to market you market to you as that first and then market to you as the employee of the business where you currently work. And if we get that backwards, then we lose that portability and that loyalty across across companies because frankly the most effective way that I've ever seen marketing work is just going back to to alumni people who have have bought in the past and gone to new companies where you're not installed and you go and say to them hey you have really great great success with our solution at your last job are we a fit for where you are today mm -hmm. totally i was thinking about that earlier today and i'm like it's got to be the one of the like most most underutilized 
like or talked about, I should say, plays is like the someone moves a company play. Like obviously we all know it, but like I don't hear marketers talking about it that much. Like uh, you hear salespeople be like, "Oh, they just moved." But gosh, I, we we have a bunch of customers that, especially for some creating something like content series, where it's like, yeah, you know, if your CEO or whatever is just like, "Ah, I don't want to do this," it just gets the kibosh, and then they go to a new company like, "Oh yeah, they've been they've wanted to do one of these for years. They just haven't found the right person to lead the project and the right partner or whatever." Yeah, we see that all the time. That's a great point. So zooming out here to your marketing strategy, to your content marketing strategy, you have built and run a content marketing org at SAP. Now you're the chief experience officer at Emburse. Content marketing is is core to your strategy, is core to who you are. How do you think about it? Look, I think it without without trust, you can't do business. And Today, buyers are really sophisticated. Before the information age, to get content, a buyer had to engage with brands, right? If you wanted to learn about a car, and I'm a car guy, so I use car analogies a lot, but when I went and bought my first car, there was no internet. And so I had to go from dealer to dealer to dealer and fight off their salespeople and be like, no, I don't want to test drive. No, I don't want to, no, 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 leave me alone. I just want the brochure. So I could collect all the brochures and go home and read through everything and try to inform myself. I also subscribed to Road and Track and Car and Driver and Motor Trend and, and would watch Auto Week on PBS. Like I was hungry for information and insights. Now we live in this world where that's readily available and there's so many sources of it. So, you know, back then an automotive brochure was pretty cut and dried. It was speeds and feeds and there's a little bit of marketing veneer applied, but it was fairly factual about the cars. Um, Now people have a lot of questions and they are looking for answers and content fills that gap. And if we don't produce excellent content that genuinely seeks to inform and educate and help the customer, then they're just going to ignore it and they're going to go somewhere else. And, and they're going to label us in a way that puts us in the no trust category. Hey, they're just trying to sell to me. I just feel sold to if you can create content that authentically seeks to inform and to add value, then you start to move into the trusted advisor quadrant, which is where you really want to be. And the other piece of this puzzle is that we have to look at the content we create through the lens of the customer journey. I I know marketers love their acronyms, TOFU, MOFU, BOFU, like all of these foo acronyms. I always crack up when I look at this stuff. And I think that's such an inside out way of putting labels and tags on content. And it, and it's, you know, I, I get it. Marketers like things in three. And so having three foos is great, but that's not actually how people buy. That's not how the customer journey actually works. For sure. And what's really interesting when you look at the customer journey is, They'll use your asset any way they want to. <laughs> You're not in control. You might th- you might create something that you think, oh, this is a bottom of funnel asset, and they're using it at the top of the funnel to educate themselves. But you're like, oh, they're using this asset. That must mean they want to buy from me. Let me have a sales rep follow up. And we're wasting a lot of cycles. And so I think about the importance of, of looking at how content is used all throughout the customer journey, how the same piece of content might be experienced if the person is coming in early and they just want to see a product demo to get a sense for what does it even look like? I've never Mm -hmm. seen one of these before. I just, I want to see what would it even look like for my user community to be in a system that does this thing instead of it's Excel, which is really different in the way a product demo gets used versus, hey, I'm now down to you and your competitors and I saw a live demo, but I want to go back through one more time and like watch these online demos to like nitpick features, right? Same demo, but for really different purposes. So if we look at the assets that we build and the content we create through the lens of, of what are we trying to achieve? Is this super early in the journey? Right? Are we trying to create inception, this moment of we're having a conversation about a topic that, that raises an idea in someone's mind? 
Listen, if you're going to perform inception, you need imagination. And they go, huh, I don't even know. Is that a problem in my business? Is there an opportunity I'm missing? If we think about it from, from that all the way through down to what often is forgotten, which is creating materials that help justify the purchase financially, that will help, once you're selected, get through the audit for for security and data privacy, go through all of the, the rounds of justification and internal selling that have to happen, and then actually tee up the implementation. You know, and that's one of the, the benefits of being a CXO, not just a CMO, as I was in my last job. Um, I actually get to think about the whole customer journey past the point of contracting all the way through implementation, go live, adoption, expansion, and ultimately customer advocacy. And when we think about the content that's required to get people to actually use the features of the products they've already bought, that's also typically underfunded. But Ian, to your point, that content helps ring the bell at renewal because the customer is being reminded of all the stuff that is in the product that they haven't yet implemented. implemented, yeah. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. We have dashboards we haven't even turned on yet. We should go explore those, right? Let's renew the contract. You know, but, but again, if we're smart about the way we look at that content, it's the same content that is used to talk to people about dashboards for the first time. I think it's so true that we just sort of label things as like bottom of the funnel or top of the funnel and things like that. And like maybe historically that, it it was, you know, more like that. And maybe it or maybe it never was. But I do think it's it's quite the fool's errand to try to derive that much information from it. Unless there's like a real signal, right? Unless you're like, I'm pretty sure that whenever anyone does downloads this thing that like we close the deal two days later, but it's like, yeah, no, this piece of content, a bunch of people convert off Google and then we close deal seven seven days later. It's like, oh yeah, but those people all went to our user conference last year. Like, oh yeah, I mean, they're all subscribed to the email newsletter and like, oh, they listen to our podcast and uh, maybe it wasn't just the one like white paper that you put out, <laughs> you know, like maybe, yeah. I mean, they, clearly it was part of it, but... Like, well, and, and I think that's, that's to, to some extent, the most misunderstood content of all, because, you know, salespeople will be so focused. Now they've got the person, right? They're, they have the prospect and they've gotten them interested and they're moving through the various stages of the sales process. They're not, maybe not paying so much attention to the buying journey, but the stuff that we label as top of funnel. Hey, if you're competing with somebody on, you know, I'll go back to my earlier example around dashboards, right? Like if you're in this deal and, you know, the, the, the customer's really trying to get insights. If you don't send them the podcast that you did that was just sort of talking about how, you know, how to find insights in the data and the importance of analytics in the enterprise and your point of view on that you're missing an opportunity to become that trusted advisor and demonstrate that this isn't just a feature we built into the product, but something that's really important to us as a business. And, and that might be that differentiating moment where the person goes, oh, they're really committed to that if they're talking about it in a podcast and not just in their sales brochure. Like they're spending time, effort, and energy talking not about the product, but about the discipline or the idea and really unpacking it. They're demonstrating deep knowledge of what's required and why a business would want that. And I'll choose them. And now that's that's how you can apply a, quote, top of funnel asset way late in the buyer's journey to bolster your position as a thought leader on a topic, not just the fact that you have feature function and you can demonstrate it in your product. And so I think that's where marketers, again, like this desire to categorize the content by where it, where we use it in the funnel is different than looking at the content and saying, where, what are we building it for to make sure we have coverage over the whole buyer's journey or the whole customer journey post-purchase as well? But then let's also respect the fact that the, the, the audience is going to use the content the way they want to use the content. And they may be super early stage, but they're going to come in and look at a product demo. They may be super late stage, but subscribe to your podcast because they want to know that you're committed to the domain and the topic, not just selling a product. How do you view the ROI of content? Well, this is the, the multi-million dollar question, isn't it? 
you know, I think th- this is where <laughs> to go back to the to the idea of mapping things to the the customer journey. It's much easier to measure the stuff that that happens later in the journey because you can do things like say, well, if we produce a whole series of of online demos, right, professionally produced online demo videos, we can look at how much that unburdens our pre-sales people from having to do all these demos. They're only doing custom demos. They're not doing overview demos anymore. So how much time, effort does that save in the sales cycle? If we create more middle-of-the-journey content where we say the prospect is now going from educating themselves on the problem to educating themselves on the solution to the problem, right? We can we can look at conversion rates and we can look at how high quality are those leads versus leads who are not experiencing this content. And we can demonstrate that people who spend more time on our website informing themselves about how to solve the problem ultimately have a higher conversion rate and a higher win rate and deal sizes are larger, right? So that's how we can measure that value. Where where we're thinking about the earliest content, this idea of planting seeds that will germinate later, that's where it's it's much harder to measure that. And that's really, now you're looking for correlation, right? If we start a podcast series on a certain topic, is there an uptick in interest a month, two months, three months, six months later, are we seeing a different trend in interest, traffic to the website or other variables, other other KPIs that we can link back to this start of this content series? That's really, you know, from my perspective, the best way to measure that is because we are, again, it's it's how do you know when you've actually planted the idea? You don't until they start demonstrating some sort of intense signals. So consumer content is easier because they'll put, you know, hey, you know, go to our website and if you put this code in when you make your purchase, then you'll get 10% off. And so they know they they have really great attribution back to the podcast. But in B2B, it doesn't quite work that way, uh, especially when you're talking about larger, larger ticket item um, purchases. So you know, I think that's where you're really trying to look for correlated activity, where when you make a change, when you introduce a new type of content that's that's happening early, you're looking for that trailing effect on other KPIs. I love it. Any cool uh, content or campaigns that you have coming up at Inburst that you're excited about? We have so much going on right now. What I'm most excited about, and and I think it's it, this is this is going to be a broad category of things we're doing. We have so much transactional insight into what companies are expensing, what they're spending their money on. We we have eighteen thousand customers. We have millions of people submitting expense reports, processing invoices through our system. So we we have some really fun content every year. I actually wound up being quoted in MarketWatch because some of our data is looking is showing how marketers are spending ad dollars and you know they're really spending you know ad ad spend is down except with Google and Meta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pretty much. Right in LinkedIn. And so we have these really interesting insights, and that's something that I love and am really excited about because it it actually adds value to our audience. It gives them real information that only we can provide. And that's the stuff that I think we as, as a marketing organization, quite frankly, aren't doing enough with. And so that's part of the the work that I'm doing right now is to try to make sure that our product marketing motion and our awareness marketing motions are much better integrated so that we're thinking holistically about the problems people are facing and then giving them some of this data and some of these insights to to help them in their work, not just position our products. Well, it's time for me to kick you out of this out of this dream. And uh... <laughs> I hear the music playing. Yeah. Van uh, what what would your totem be? Oh, uh, oh, that's a good question. What would my totem be? I think it would probably be like an old one Deutschmark coin. 
Ooh. Cool. That's a fun one. Nobody would know the year. I always liked the little dog in the Monopoly game. He was always my my little thing, so probably that. Oh, fun. That's good. I I don't know what I would do either. Maybe I'll just go with like a football because I feel like you could spin it and uh, it's kind of been done, but I'll do it. That's big to keep in your pocket. Yeah. Oh, that's right. (laughs) That's called ball security, Johan. I got to keep it five, five points of contact. I just, I'm walking around the, uh, I'm walking around the world just taking contact. It's been awesome having you on the show. Any final thoughts on, on Inception or content marketing? Yeah, just it has to be their idea. Yeah, I love it. Thanks again. Thanks, Ian. It's been a real pleasure. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.